So first question before you, because you're going to basically present this, I think, aren't you? So this is where we're going tonight. You've got, what, half an hour, 25 minutes? Yeah, well, something hour, like that. Something like that. An hour, <laughs> two hours. People, people hours. know me by now. <laughs> yeah, OK. So, um, and then if there's time, which there will be, uh, we'll do um, a bit of Q&A as well, um, which I think will be useful. Um, well, first question, just to kick off. So um, the stuff we're talking about tonight... <clears throat> Sometimes I refer to closed-handed issues and open-handed issues. Um, so what I mean by that is, is so some issues are you, you holding a closed hand as a Christian, that Jesus is God, the Trinity, he died for our sins, he rose from the dead, virgin birth, those sort of things, okay? Uh, and the, but there are open-handed issues as well, and there are all kinds of open-handed issues, things that you... you you might be important to us, and important to talk about, and valuable to understand, but actually we can disagree as well. Now, so tonight, open hand or closed hand? Well, biblically, we will talk about things of first importance and things of secondary importance, and the things of secondary importance, I presume, would be open-handed things, yeah. like creation. Like creation. So, Except that I think every Christian would need to hold to the fact that God is creator. Right, so, so what, what out of the, so when it comes to the subject of creation in Genesis 1 and 2, what is vitally important that we must believe? Can I, can I get on with my presentation? Okay, we're gonna come to that, okay. I'll save that for the Q&A afterwards. Yeah. But just to say, there are things tonight that are not of first importance. So that means we can agree to disagree and we can still be friends, okay? So bear that in mind, be good people, play nicely. <laughs> um, okay, let me, let me start by telling you about the girl on the train. I was traveling from Delhi to Derudun on a, on a train and opposite me sat a young lady she was doing a PhD in microbiology. She was obviously Hindu. And uh, after talking about many things, I asked her how she reconciled her Hindu faith with um, her understanding of science. And she said, well, the Hindu position is that the earth was created from, three, um, from the unfolding of three petals of the lotus plant, lotus flower. And her answer was this. I have no problem at all, because my faith has got nothing to do with science. To say that our understanding of the Bible is unrelated to science is as absurd as saying it's unrelated to geography, history, medicine, astronomy, and all the other sciences that are investigations of God's creation. No Christian should avoid science because they think it will undermine their faith. Historically, some of the most eminent scientists have come from a Judeo-Christian background. We were created to ask questions. 
And the Christian faith never shies away from questions. And we need a faith that asks questions. What is truth is still the most important question. Now, my concern is that if Christians are doubtful about Genesis 1 and 2, then they may become doubtful about the rest of Scripture being the inerrant, infallible Word of God upon which we're to base all our faith and all our conduct. And if we as Christians hold a view that is contrary to proven scientific facts, then we undermine the truth of the gospel in the minds and ears of our hearers. Of one thing we may be absolutely sure, and that is the works of God's hands will never contradict the words of his mouth and vice versa because they have the same author. I want you to think this evening. If you've come here because it's a normal Sunday evening, then please go to sleep (laughs) because it's not going to be like that. I want you to think tonight. I grew up as a Christian with traditional evangelical views of Genesis 1 and 2 that all creation took place within six periods of 12 hours of daylight. Everything was entirely miraculous and any appeal to the discoveries of science was flawed. And anyone holding any other view was regarded as having denied the faith. And that is still the position of many churches in America and maybe here in the UK as well. But that is exactly what happened in the 16th century. Up to then, all Christians believed that the earth didn't move. They were fixed earthers. The sun went round the earth. Because that is what scripture said. Psalm 104, verse 5, he set the earth on its foundations never to move. Until Galileo and Copernicus in 1543 proved it did move. It moved around the sun. Now what do you do? When you have a conflict like that, why are we not all fixed earthers today? What we have to do is to look at the text again and see what it is truly saying, see if we've understood it aright. And that's what I want us to do tonight. Look at the text again. Now, I'm still learning, don't have all the answers, but I do think I have enough to get you thinking tonight, and that's what I want us to do. I'm going to have fun with this because I don't usually operate this. (laughs) So we'll see how we get on. 
Okay, Genesis 1 begins with a great statement. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We don't know when the beginning was. We're not told. But there was a beginning of the heavens and the earth. God was there. He is the creator. This universe is theocentric. He made all things. And God gives names to things. Not for his sake, but for our sake. That we might know that he is their creator. The Egyptians worshipped the sun. The Babylonians worshipped the moon. But these things, these celestial objects, are not gods. They are the creation of the one true God. They are his servants. And we're told that the early earth was formless, empty, and dark. And those descriptions are important. And then God speaks. Each of these six days begins with the words, God said. We're meant to take notice of that. It stands in contrast to the opening statement in the beginning. To whom is God speaking? To the formless, empty, dark earth? Certainly, absolutely. By his word, all things were created. Colossians 1, Hebrews 11, 3, John 1, 3. But having said that, have we said everything we should note about the text? God said, or rather inspired, the whole of Genesis 1. No one was there when God created the heavens and the earth. Adam wasn't there when light was made. Adam wasn't there when the waters were divided. So at some point, the whole of Genesis 1 must have been revealed to Adam. Wasn't written by the finger of God on stone tablets like the law of Moses. There's no indication of that. It was revealed and most probably compiled by Moses as God's people were about to enter the promised land. They needed to know that God is God, that Jehovah God. They need to know who Jehovah God is. This God who has revealed himself at the burning bush. Who is this God? He is the maker. He is the creator of the heavens and the earth, the sun, the moon, the stars. They are not gods. The style in which Genesis 1 is written is not that of a vision. I saw, I heard, like John in Revelation. But rather someone recording the actual words God used in telling the story of creation. And in particular, these statements on six days, which each begin with God said. And each day ends, there was evening and there was morning. 
Now, we should be asking the question, why does everything stop at sunset and begin again in the morning at sunrise? Clearly, we're meant to notice that. Does God need to rest? Of course not. But a human writer does. And I think it is far more logical to think that these six days refer to the time God spent in revealing to Adam the account of creation. This is what God said on day one. This is what God said on day two. So what we have in Genesis 1 is the revelation of God's creation to Adam, revealed over a period of six literal 24-hour days. And the reason God did it like that, we'll have to wait till later on this evening to see. Now, in the first set of three days, we're told of the creation of realms, kingdoms, the formation of structures. Each of these days corresponds to the original description, dark, formless, and empty. So day one, God revealed that he created light and determined that it should divide day from night. Day two, God revealed the creation of the atmosphere and the separation of the sky from the seas. Day three, God revealed he is the creator of dry land and vegetation on it. On the second of three days, we're told about the populating, the inhabiting of those same realms, the rulers of those same realms, the filling of those structures. So day four, darkness was filled with light from specific named light sources. Sun, moon, stars. Day five, the seas were populated with fish and the atmosphere above with birds. Day six, the dry land was populated with animal life and most importantly, the creation of Adam and Eve. So the first three the first, the first set of three days, God revealed the forming of the earth. And on the second set of three days, he revealed the filling of the earth. Okay, just, I'll, I'll just leave that up for a moment for you to think about before we go on. Uh, we will take questions, but... I want to carry on. Okay. Let's think about the garden God planted. 
Genesis 1 is the summary of God's revelation about the heavens and the earth. If you like a bird's eye view of the whole of creation. Well, it's not a bird, is it? It's an astronaut. It's someone outside, completely outside, who looks down and sees. And the word created, bara in the Hebrew, is used six times. It's interesting that the Hebrew word for earth is the same word for land. So it is left to the translators and their particular theological position as to which is most appropriate in our translation. Genesis 2, 5.17 is like a Google Maps close-up of something special that God planted. The earth was created, the garden was planted, and God called it Eden. So straight away, there is a difference between the created earth and the planted garden. I think we're meant to see that. In Genesis 1, God gives names to things, day, night, light, sun, moon, stars. Genesis 2, Adam gives names to livestock, beasts of the field, and birds of the garden. In Genesis 1, the name of God throughout is Elohim. Simply means God. It's actually um, masculine plural, which is interesting. But it simply means God. The name of God in Genesis 2 is Jehovah Elohim. That name revealed to Moses at the burning bush. Well, that's interesting as well, isn't it? I think we're meant to notice that. The garden is a real geographical place. And it's a big place. It has four named rivers. There is gold in the land and precious stones in the ground. And there are two particular trees. These trees don't have magical properties, but have blessings and curses attached to them, according to God's commandment. So we should not think of these trees as being anything mystical. They're just ordinary trees. Well, they were special trees. They were identifiably special. But they didn't have magical qualities. And the garden has two people in it, male and female. Real, actual people. And it has a clear boundary. Because later, Adam and Eve get thrown out of it. And they are banned from re-entering it. So that, I think, should pose us with a number of questions. Why is a garden made for Adam and Eve? If the whole earth is perfect, why does God make a special garden within it? (coughs) 
Does life in the garden differ from life in the rest of the earth? How different? Was animal life different? We're told there were beasts of the field in the garden rather than beasts of the earth. Did the animals in the garden behave differently to those outside the garden? Was the garden a tame area compared to the wildness of the earth? And we're told there were crops in the garden waiting for the creation of man to harvest them. And there were trees in the garden that were pleasant to look at and good for food and two special trees, tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And above everything else, what made this garden special was that this was where the Lord walked in the cool of the day. So does this garden represent something very special that later Revelation is going to build upon? The book of Revelation describes a garden city full of gold and precious stones and whole avenues of the tree, trees of life everywhere along the <clears throat> banks of the river that flows through the city and above everything else the Lord God himself enthroned there in the new garden city and nothing evil or sinful will ever enter this city unlike the garden It's not the whole earth that is a picture of the future, but the garden. The garden is a prototype of the new earth. That poses another question. Is our future inheritance in Christ a return to the state of Eden? Or is it, in fact, something much, much better of which the garden is only a shadow of things to come? Lots of questions there. Let's see if we can answer some of them. Is very good the same as perfect? God says that what he created was good. He says that five times. After creation of man, God said it was very good. What does very good mean? Is very good the same as perfection? Now, many scriptures speak about God being good. Psalm 107, verse 1, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. 
In that sense, good is equated with holiness. It's a moral quality. It means perfect. It means without fault. It means sinless. That's what God is. But is that the primary meaning of good with respect to creation in Genesis 1? If I make something, let's say a chair, and I cut it and I carve it from the very finest wood that Isaac can supply me with, and I upholster it in the very best materials so that it is beautiful and wonderfully comfortable to sit in, I may describe it as very good. Not because I am making a moral evaluation of it, but meaning that chair perfectly fulfills the purpose for which it was made. And in that sense, it is very good because it accomplishes everything God intended. And this, I believe, is how good is used throughout the Bible to describe what God does. Okay, really important scripture. You know it off by heart, I'm sure. Romans 8, 28. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now, how do you understand that verse? Does it mean that everything that happens to us is good in a moral sense? No. When you trust in the Lord, it doesn't mean that only good things will ever happen to you. That is the prosperity gospel. Bad things and evil things happen to some of God's most beloved people. We can think of the persecution of Christians throughout the world at the moment. We can also look at Job. In the end, God revealed his sovereignty to Job in such a way that simply said to him, trust me, trust me. A good purpose will come out of, that, of this. Trust me. <coughs> Romans 8.28 means God has a good purpose in everything that happens to his people. Even when bad things happen to us, we rest in his sovereign love for us. We find rest in living under his sovereign rule, believing, trusting, knowing that he has a good and loving purpose in every event that happens in our life. That's our faith. And probably one of the best examples of that is Joseph. You intended to harm me, he says to his brothers. 
But God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Well, you know, Joseph experienced some very bad things. The obscene favoritism of his father, the hostility of his brothers towards him, their hatred of him, slavery in Egypt, false accusation of rape by Potiphar's wife, imprisonment, and then years, years of being forgotten in a prison. What a catalogue of unending torment. But what God planned was very good because in his sovereign will, it accomplished the saving of many lives. And of course, the supreme example of that is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was crucified by wicked people. Terrible, evil things were done to him, done to the Prince of Glory. But according to the plan and purpose of God, it pleased the Lord to crush him. Because it was very good in saving a multitude, no man can number, from death and hell and sin. And Peter was wrong. Peter was wrong in thinking that Jesus' death would be a great evil. Jesus' death brings about the greatest good. Creation in Genesis 1 is very good because it perfectly fulfills God's purpose. And we have to be very careful in thinking like Peter that we have a better plan. What was that purpose? To create a testing place for Adam. A place where Adam would have every reason, every encouragement to obey God. So long as he ate from the tree of life and did not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he remained in Eden, walking with God. Eden was a place of probation, not perfection. God did not create this present world to last forever. It was never intended to be the permanent home of God's children. It was always created with a sell-by date. And for that reason, the new earth is not simply a return to Eden. Because Eden was in Adam, under law, from the beginning, under commandment. And the new creation is in Christ, under grace, perfect and permanent. They are two completely different realms. In Eden, Adam was a gardener and he ruled over plants and animals. In the new creation, in Christ, we are triumphant kings and queens who rule over cities and angels and demons and stars. 
Some time ago, I, a long time ago, I preached on Psalm 19. And I began to think about the sun. And to think about what it actually is. Well, this is how God describes it. The heavens declare the glory of God. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It's like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises from one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. A celebration of the sun in all its glory. Well, what is the sun? The sun is a gigantic nuclear furnace. And I'm told there are 10 billion nuclear explosions every second in the sun. It is the most destructive thing in our solar system. It is the most feared. You cannot look upon it without burning out your retina. It's 93 million miles away. We don't want it any closer than that. And we're thankful that there is an ozone layer. Otherwise, it would destroy all life on Earth. God created the sun, and he says, it declares my glory. It is good because it perfectly fulfills the purpose for which it was created. The forces of nature in themselves are not evil. Thunderstorms, earthquakes, movements in the tectonic plates, they are part of this probationary world in which we live. They were created good to achieve God's purpose. Let's go on. Was there death in the world before the fall? Did death only come into God's creation after Adam rebelled against God's command? That is the claim of young earth creationists, which became very popular from about the 1970s, early 1970s in most evangelical churches. They would teach that prior to Adam's sin, there was no hunger, no struggle for survival, no death of any kind of living organism. There was no death in the world, not in animals, birds, plants, and by logic, stars, microbes, and all the other things we can't see. And we ask the question, where is the biblical evidence for that? And I have to say, I am appalled by the usage of various, no, not the usage, the interpretation of many young earth creationists with the scriptures, which we're now going to look at. So let's start. Romans 5.12 Therefore, 
Now read this carefully. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. It doesn't say death entered the world. It says sin entered the world. And as a result, death came to all people because all sinned. Not all creation. Animals didn't sin. Animals are not moral beings. And we do need to be careful not to romanticise or be over-sentimental about animals. I know Neville isn't, and we need to catch up with him in some respects. Let's continue. Romans 5.18. And these are all the great verses on this subject. Romans 5.18. Romans One trespass resulted in condemnation for all people. Now, the context makes it clear that it is limited to man. Verse 14, death reigned from Adam to Moses. Adam was warned that disobeying God's one command, he would die. There was nothing about animals dying as a result of his sin. Let's go on to another great text. 1 Corinthians 15, 21. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Death came to mankind through Adam's sin. But resurrection... And eternal life also comes through a man, through Christ. That's Paul's logic. If the in all die, in Adam all die, includes animals, then all animals will be made alive again in Christ. That's the logic of Paul here. And however much you may wish that your beloved dog would live again, sadly it's not going to happen. Animals are not going to be resurrected. Though I think that what you felt will be rewarded in other ways and you won't feel you're missing out. Romans 8 20. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Now the question is, when was it subjected to frustration? And by whom? By Adam? Doesn't say that. Was it Adam's will to choose frustration for creation? 
Certainly not. Adam's will did not put the whole creation, including the heavens, into a state of decay. That puts Adam at the centre of creation. And he isn't at the centre of creation. God is at the centre of creation. And it was not Adam's will to subject it in hope of being liberated. I think a much better reading, and it's the, the I, I think the NIV in the in that in that room is the reader's version, or is that youth version? But there is an NIV reader's version, and it says this: the create of this. This is translation of that text. The created world was bound to fail, but that was not the result of its own choice. It was planned that way by the one who made it. Now, when I, when I first read that text, I thought to myself, and I'm going back some years ago, I thought to myself, this is about the best description of the second law of thermodynamics. I'm a physicist by training and uh, teaching. And that's a really good description of the second law of thermodynamics. That everything decays into a lower form of energy. That disorder increases. That everything runs downhill. And it was created that way. The creation groans, longing for its freedom. Freedom from what? Freedom from its enslavement to decay and perishing. The earth was not created immortal, but transitory. I think every springtime is an example of that which is there in creation, this struggle to live forever, this struggle for new life. And every year it's frustrated. Every year it dies again. This present earth was never designed to be eternal. That was not its purpose. There is an eternal world coming, but this isn't it. Adam was given access to life through the continual use of the tree of life provided by God. As long as he was obedient to God, he would live. He was under law. This present world was always under law. It was created under law. Blessings for obedience, curse for disobedience. Adam was created to be ruler of this world, and he failed. The Lord Jesus, as the second man, came into this world. He is the new ruler of the world and head of the new redeemed mankind, but not of this earth. This earth is going to be rolled up because there's a new one coming of which he reigns as king of kings, lord of lords, as he does now. And those who are in Christ are under grace, not law. Grace rules the new world, of which we have a foretaste in this present world. 
Okay, a lot, quite a few verses there for you to think about. Let's, uh, we're coming towards the end. Not there yet, but almost. Okay, in what way was the ground cursed? God said to Adam, Genesis 3.17, Cursed is the ground because of you. The ground, not the whole earth, or sea, or sky, or stars. It was very specific and very focused in its scope. The ground. Why? Why was the ground cursed? Because Adam is a gardener. He's not a fisherman. Doesn't go out there in the sea. He's not an astronaut in the sky. He's a, he's a, he's a gardener. He's a farmer. This is his realm. Adam would now know increased sweat and pain and labour in finding food. Work would become onerous. He's chosen to eat something he shouldn't, and now eating for him will become much more difficult. The ground, which should have been a blessing and a delight to him in his work, now becomes a curse to him in being harder and frustrating for him. What should have been his delight to cultivate now is his nemesis. Life is much harder, but not totally different. This curse is not an all-inclusive blank check to explain away everything that we find painful in life or all those things in the earth that cause it to groan. This is not a seismic event that changed the whole of creation. And notice that the curse is not directed to the ground. It's directed to Adam. It's simply a statement of fact about the ground. Cursed is the ground, your ground, because of what you've done, what you've brought upon yourself. Being cast out of the garden into the wildness of the earth, Adam would now experience all its thorns, all its thistles, all its wildness, all its frustrations, and all its groaning. There are no new laws of physics here, no new laws of biology or chemistry. No new complete change of creature identity. No reshaping of the world with animals suddenly becoming carnivorous. Because that isn't simply a change of diet. You need to think about this. That would involve entirely different metabolisms. Digestive systems, behavioural characteristics, intuitive attack and defence mechanisms, not to mention teeth, claws, stingers, 
immune systems. No new species were created. No new sharks, octopus, jellyfish, vultures, anteaters, bombardier beetles, if you know what that is, electric eels, sea urchins. Carnivorous animals are not woefully twisted forms of their original creatures. They glorify God as they do now. Paul can confidently say, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. From the creation of the world, not from the fall, from the creation of the world. This world, this world has always given ample proof of God's power and divine nature. And even in Adam's new environment, God boasts to Job, Job being probably the first book of the Bible, first written book that we have. God boasts to Job of his entire creation, 38, chapter 38 through 41. And he says this, 38, 39, do you hunt prey for the lioness or food for the ravens? The implication being that God provides food for all the animals of his creation. And the natural order of predator and prey in the animal world is part of God's eternal plan and not because of the curse upon the ground. This curse is not an entirely new creation because of Adam's sin. And man's sin did not spoil everything that God made or ruin God's plans. Outside of God's planted garden, life was as we see it today. That's something to think about, isn't it? Let's go on. Why is God concerned with what animals eat? Why is he concerned about what Adam eats? Why does Genesis 1 and 2 speak so much about food? I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move upon the ground. Everything has breath of life in it. I give every green plant for food. Now, it's all a question of whether you are a half glass empty or a half glass full person. If your glass is half empty, then this is a binding restriction upon animals and man. If you're a glass half full person, 
then God is simply indicating the rich, abundant provision that he has made for all his creation. In effect, God says, I give you everything you could possibly need in the vegetarian world, multitudes of plants and trees for food. And same true for the animals. They have no restriction placed upon them in the vegetarian world. Look at the vegetarian world, God says. Why does God call attention to this particular provision? Because the test of obedience is all about food. In the light of God's bountiful provision of delicious fruits and vegetables for animals and mankind, there is just, just one simple commandment not to eat from one particular tree. Adam has absolutely no excuse for disobedience. In our front room uh, at home, next door, we have a large collection of toys that our children enjoyed, that we kept a lot of them for the benefit of our grandchildren through their ages. And the room is, my wife has it as her office, I can't, I can't see where she is. Oh, right. My wife has it as her office, but most of the shelves in there are completely covered with toys. If we tell our little Freddy that he can play with any of the huge number of Lego bricks that there are in the front room, but not to play with the large Lego helicopter that Grandpa made... We are not saying that he can't play with the jigsaw or the colouring books or anything else. We're just saying, don't play with the helicopter. There are plenty of other bricks there for you to play with. If this instruction about food for the animals and Adam is a restriction as to what they can only eat, then it makes another commandment which has to be kept. And that is contrary to the plain meaning of Genesis 2. There is but one commandment, one step of obedience for Adam, only one. Finally, I know you're pleased to hear that word, but beware preachers say that. But it is finally. Finally, Okay, the seventh day. The fourth commandment is remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And it comes with a reason to keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do, Asa, all your work. On it you shall not do, Asa is the Hebrew, any work. For in six days the Lord made, Asa, the heavens and the earth, 
the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy. The Hebrew word Asa is used over 1,500 times in the Old Testament and translated do 1,500 times. It's translated made there, but it's the same word. It's left to translators, you see, to decide how they're going to translate a word. Translators have a theology as well. What did the Lord do? Not the word create, which is bara. What did the Lord do for six days and stop doing on the seventh day? He stopped speaking. He rested. Why did God do that? For his own sake? No. In order to give us a pattern for our work. How do we know it's a pattern for our work? Because Jesus told us. Matthew, sorry, Mark 2, 27. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. God did it this way for our sakes. Because we need to learn that six days of work are to be followed by one day of rest. Now this pattern only works if all the days are 24 hours. It doesn't work if God's six days are long geological ages and ours are just 24 hours. Our seventh day is 24 hours. The meaning of the day must be the same because that's the pattern that God is setting. And it doesn't work if the six days are 24 hours each followed by an unending long day of rest. The Israelites would surely have assumed the plain meaning that God did something for six ordinary days and he ceased doing it on the seventh literal day. What did he do? Over a period of six literal 24-hour days, God spoke and he revealed his creation of the world and then he stopped revealing to give us a pattern for our working and our ceasing from work. And some of you look brain dead. <laughs> but perhaps you're not. Perhaps you've been con just contemplating what I've been... So, okay, I wish we had about an hour longer, but we really don't. Um, so who'd like to ask a question? And I'm grateful that I'm not answering them. <laughs> Anybody? Yes. I just want to check. Um, so, what you were saying with the seven days was it that God? Those seven days were God explaining to Adam what He created, and then on over the six days, and then seventh day, obviously you rested. Yes. Yes. Point of clarification, right? Anybody else? It's 
Something you want to clarify? Can all the questions be that easy, please? <laughs> <laughs> Joe, I'm not running that far. Go on. Okay, right. In the light of that, how old is the earth? I wouldn't. The Bible doesn't tell me. So, so you have no, you just, you, you would argue that the Bible just doesn't comment on that subject. Yep. So you're open to young earth, old earth, however you want. Yep. Billions of years, millions of years, thousands, thousands. of years. Yep. Yeah, could be ten thousand, could be ten billion. Yep. All right. I want to ask a question. Marek, I can come that far. So can you answer that question as a physicist? <laughs> Interesting. No. <laughs> so, so a physicist would probably say the universe is 3.8 billion years, wouldn't they? Is that right? 13.8 billion years, sorry. Yeah, that's the present conjecture that that the by looking at all sorts of astronomical things it would appear to be about what's it 13.8 13. yeah. but who knows because when Jesus turned water into wine it, process which should have taken sort of months and probably a whole year done in a moment. We cannot exclude the miraculous. Please. I don't know, but I, it's, you have, I think you have to be careful about, about being too certain about things about which we are still not certain. So you're saying God could have created it with the appearance of age. He clearly has that ability, as Jesus demonstrated. Yeah, I'm not here to talk about the age of the earth. Sure. All right, there we go. Next. Yes, Carlos. So, were animals always meant to die from the beginning of creation? Yes. Yeah. They were part of a process. Where, where is Eden now? Like, it's like, man got kicked out after his sin. And then there's the swords flashing backwards and forwards. Where, where is it now? Where are the swords? Interesting. Well, we don't know. We have a flood that happened. And I guess the flood probably destroyed every resemblance to what Eden was then. All wiped out. Yes. It, okay. has, it has no future. Belongs in the past. Okay. Purity. Thank you. Uh, I, I wanted to ask, what, like, when is the Sabbath day? Is it on a Saturday or on a Sunday? Because sometimes I've heard yeah, that, that disagreement with some of my friends. That's a big deal. It can be, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah what of 7,000 That's a great question. But it's not topic to, for tonight. <laughs> Ask him afterwards. Right. Uh, yeah, oh, it's too far away. Yeah, um, go on, Gabe. Big voice, go on. Um, a question that came up here was um, 
was that creation completely finished or is God with his sustaining the earth, is he doing some creation still? Okay, I'm for the benefit of those on YouTube. So is is creation finished? Or is when it when the Bible says that God is upholding and sustaining all things, does that mean creation is ongoing? Well, providentially, God still sustains this world. Providentially, he continues to work out his plan for this world. But in terms of creation, that is over, that is finished. But his providence continues. So his work of, of pro providing for both the animal kingdom and the human kingdom continues. And for his people as well. So there's a difference between providence and creation. So let me just rephrase that slightly. So, so the ages of people in the early part of Genesis, they, they live for hundreds and hundreds of years old, and then they get shorter and shorter and shorter after flood. I love all these subjects that are off topic. <laughs> I, would, I would have thought tonight I've given you enough to think about without going off topic. Um, yes, certainly before the flood, it seemed that man's life was very much longer, and after the flood... Um, man's life was 70 years um, attributed to him. Who knows? I mean, there are scientific reasons for believing that. I mean, if... I've, I've got a good but, sermon on that. I'll show yeah, you. I, it's, I don't really want to go into that area because it's, I spend too much time. Yeah. But there are scientific reasons for believing why man's life span shortened, possibly with the flood. And, and historical reasons to believe that some of those ages might be real as well, I think. But anyway, different topic. Okay. <laughs> Patch? Uh, do you think there were people outside the Garden of Eden? Oh, that's a good question. Mm. That's a good question. Mm, it is, isn't it? <laughs> I've no idea. <laughs> <laughs> so the, I guess the question behind the question is... Did God create Adam and Eve as something unique, or were they specially chosen from among all kinds of humanoid creatures? One thing I think we can say for certain, Adam was a real person. Eve was a real person. The, the theology of Romans 5, in Adam all die, in Christ all are made alive, depends upon the singularity of Adam and the singularity of Christ. So I, whatever you may think in these things, and there are obviously a whole load of thinking, um, I think you have to believe in a singular Adam. So right back at the beginning, we talked about 
<coughs> I talked about closed-handed things and open-handed things. You talked about things of first importance and secondary importance. What, therefore, is of first importance, what we're talking about tonight? What, 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 what do you have to believe to be a Christian? What, what absolutely matters? We come down to the gospel, first of all, because we come to Christ with a whole load of different ideas and thinking. And when we, when we become a Christian, we can't believe some things. And then as we grow as a Christian, we find actually, yes, we can believe those things because they're in God's word and our own conscience testifies that they're true. So... Becoming a Christian is about the gospel. It's about coming to Christ. It's about believing that you are a sinner needing forgiveness and new life. And only Christ can give that to you. And you come to Christ with that. And you may come to Christ with all kinds of wrong views about creation, about man, about salvation but you come to the person of Christ for salvation. That is the first step. That's the most important one. But you just said that believing in a, a literal, singular Adam and Eve is really important. That's the logic, yeah. So, but you don't, come to, you don't have to have that view when you become a Christian. Right. No. No, you, boy, if you've got your theology... How many people got their theology worked out like that when they became a Christian? Whoever thought of Adam before they became a Christian? So, so that's less important than believing the, the basic tenets of the gospel. But, but it's, more important. Important, it's more important than a whole load of other things that we've talked about tonight. I'm just trying to get out of you. what In Genesis 1 and 2, what, what are the important features? What's the most important features, do you think? I'm, <clears throat> I'm hesitant to answer your question like this because <clears throat> the gospel is Christ and I don't, I don't wish to load it with having a creation view, first of all, before you can become a Christian. Okay. Uh, all right, I won't push you on it any further. <laughs> That's fine. But as a Christian, yep. as a Christian, you should believe that you were created by God, you were made by God, and he made you for himself with all your characteristics, with all your faults and failings and blessings and joys and everything else that makes you up. God made you. You are not your own. God made you, formed you while you were in your mother's womb. So you, you need to believe as a Christian that God is your creator. And you need to believe that Christ has purchased you through his blood at the cross, and you now belong to him. Okay. Another question? Yeah, sorry, I don't know your name. John. Can we have a mic, please? Thank you. Uh, uh, John, if you didn't hear it. Uh, thanks, thanks for, the, for your talk. It shed a lot of light on a lot of things. I was once in a, in a meeting. Um, 
public meeting were people who were, were calling themselves Christians, um, conservative Christians, and I didn't doubt that because, the, and, but they, they were trying to say that, um, that um, Adam was something symbolic and that God had chosen one individual person at some stage in evolution and somehow turn that into a human, etc, etc, etc. So I was, I was particularly pleased that you seemed to insist on the fact that Adam was a literal being and in the light of Romans chapter 5, I think that's undeniable. And I think if, uh, as a Christian, if people do deny that Adam and Eve were, were not literal uh, people, then I think they've got a real problem in the light of Romans 5. They certainly have a problem. doesn't make them not a Christian, though. Because even as Christians, we can hold, you know, very strange views about things. Um, you know, are we all agreed here about the second coming of Christ? Well, we are. Yes, we are believed. But are we all agreed about what the millennium is? Yeah. Probably not. <laughs> we won't go there. <laughs> we'll leave that for another day. Coming to the bit that I'm not so sure about your talk, I'm really, really troubled, deeply troubled, by your, your um, comment that, um, in the, that there was death in the world before the fall. Now, you appealed a lot to apostolic logic tonight. So would you, would you say that, logically, if God built in death in the um, pre-fall world, in the first world, how can you say that God uh, would not build in death in the second world? Um, because he says so. Because that world which is to come, uh, there is no death, there is no sun. Um, the Lord is the glory of the city. Um, Christ has destroyed the power of death. By his death, Hebrews 2. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't see a problem with your question, really, because isn't it obvious to all Christians that there won't be... Why sh because this world was made probationary, that was always the plan of God, because there was an eternal plan in view. Christ was the Lamb of God from before the creation of the world, Revelation tells us. So from the very beginning, Christ was chosen to be the Lamb for his people before the world was created. Well, that raises a whole load of other questions, but we need to realize there is a plan, and part of that plan is, the, I believe, the probationary state of this world. It is under law. From beginning, you know, right from the beginning, Adam is given a law to keep. And so long as he keeps that law, he's all right. But the moment he breaks that law, even in one instant, he is lost. And he takes down all mankind with him. Yes, 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 absolutely. Yes, and, and he, he created stars, and he created the, the, the sun. Uh, I mean, just look at the sun. I mean, you know, I, have you ever thought about that? What the sun is? 
I mean, it's the most destructive thing in our solar system. And God made it and was glorified in it. So we shouldn't be, a, you know, we shouldn't be, um, we shouldn't be a, a afraid of, of these forces, these powers. They are created by God. God created physics. Yeah. So you're saying that death came to human beings at the fall. Yes. That's, well, that's, but, but death was always there for everything else. How did, how did Adam know what death was? In the day you sin, you will die. Well, what it, how, did they, how did he know what death was? Unless there was death present. But not in the garden. Joe, are you putting your hands up to say, John, we're out of time? No. We are. Ah, when we get there, there are new laws. There are new laws. Just look at our Saviour, resurrected from the dead, risen, able to appear and disappear, and rises. There will be new laws. Even quantum mechanics will be seen as old-fashioned. Wow. <laughs> All right, I think we'll leave it there. Let me just pray as we close. Lord, thank you for um, what we've heard tonight. Lord, please um, may it bolster our faith and cause us to think and think deeply about these things. Lord, help us, we pray, as we study your word to get it right, to understand it well, and to always challenge our thinking, we pray. And we do thank you for the little glimpse we've just had into the new heaven and the new earth where the Lord Jesus will wipe every tear from our eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things will have passed away. Yes. Yes. So we say, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus, we ask. Amen. Amen.